Heavenly Father, we thank you so much, Lord, for all the provision you have made available to us in the short year in which you have let us meet as a body. Uh, Father, it's been a miracle every time we turn around, and we thank you, Father, that as you say in your word, this is your church, and that you will lead it and guide it, and that you have the plan, and we're just trying to keep up with you. And Father, we're so thankful that we don't have to have the plan. We're so thankful we don't have to have the strength or the wisdom to do the things that we're striving to do in your name. Um, it's hard enough just to follow, Father. But we do try, and we do want to. And we ask you, Lord, that you'll continue to lead us, showing us where we go, giving us a path to serve you in some new and better way. And Father, we ask that tonight as we study and we learn about the kingdom program, how you have equipped and called us to serve you in this age, I pray, Father, our hearts would be directed to hearing these things with an attitude that says, Lord, send me and show me and help me and guide me and call me and encourage me. Father, do the things in our hearts that only you can do so that as we listen to you through your word, we will be moved. We will be changed. We won't be the person we showed up with tonight, Father, for we want to be more like you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, friends. We're studying the kingdom program. Toby mentioned the program up here, and that's uh, really the focus in chapter 10 of Matthew. This is Jesus teaching his apostles in chapter 10 uh, on the cusp of him being rejected by the people of Israel. You've heard me mention this in weeks past that Jesus anticipates what's coming. He knows in a few short days or weeks he's going to face a moment in which Israel in that day and age came to a decision regarding his claims of Messiahship, and they chose to reject it. And knowing that, he's preparing his disciples, his apostles, to take the message of the kingdom outward to Israel and beyond even, knowing that he would not stay on this earth and reign. Not yet. And I have called this the kingdom program. It's the mission, if you will, of the church. I want you to remember the concept. I know we have people that come in and out. Some weeks you're not always here. You're not able to hear the message. And this is so important. I don't want anyone to be left behind. This idea that the kingdom in the Bible, progresses through four stages, through four periods of development in Scripture. The kingdom began in the Bible as a promise. And that is when Abraham received a covenant from God that said, here is what I will do for your people, your descendants, and all nations through you. And then when Jesus came in his first coming, the kingdom program became a proposal. Jesus came and said, the kingdom of God is at hand. He was offering the kingdom to that generation of Israel. But Israel rejects it, as we heard, and we'll see one day soon in the text. And so as the kingdom was rejected in that generation, the concept of kingdom in the Bible transitions yet again from a proposal to a program. And the program is that of a church recruiting citizens out of the world to become part of this kingdom. And that's where we sit today. And as Toby said, there is a day coming, sure enough, in which the proposal that became a program will then become... A place. That is, that Jesus at his second coming will set up the kingdom on earth as promised, ruling from the seat of David in Jerusalem from a nation, chief of all Israel, among other nations on earth. This is what's coming. So we've moved from a promise to a proposal, now in a program, soon to be a place. And here in chapter 10, Matthew records how Jesus initiates the formal preparation of his disciples to oversee the beginning of the kingdom program which we continue today. But what we're finding, and I think you've seen this already in weeks past, I know you're going to see it tonight, the kingdom program will not operate in the way human thinking would expect it to. You know, God's ways are not man's ways. 
And it's never more evident than when you look at the way God has outlined the kingdom program. The program that we've been given, the ones that started with the disciples of Jesus' day and continue today, that program of recruiting citizens to join the kingdom, it's not a marketing campaign. It's not a sales effort. It doesn't result in us collecting citizens through clever arguments. Uh, We aren't going to certainly create it by force. Now, those are the ways human beings think of creating things, of building things. And people are not going to be awarded kingdom citizenship by birthright, and you cannot earn it by good behavior. All of the ways in which we build things, nah, that's not the kingdom program. The recruiting method that Jesus gave his disciples goes by a whole bunch of different rules, and of course it depends on an entirely different source of power. If you look at the back of your bulletin, you'll notice the outline that I've been using for our study of Matthew. It's purely arbitrary. I'm not claiming it's divinely inspired. Uh, It's just my way of breaking down the text in chapter 10 because it's helping me understand where I'm going. Maybe it does you as well. Today we're going to move into part four in that outline. I call it the result. I told you last week as we ended the method, on the very last verse of the method, I told you we would come back to that just briefly as an introduction today into the result. Last week as we looked at the method, you could say, in a sense, that the whole chapter is a method, if you will, but I specifically look at verses 8 through 11 as Jesus giving us four steps which guide your approach to the kingdom program. I'm going to put a different term to this so that it makes more sense for you. When I'm talking about the method or the kingdom program, let's just call it evangelism, because today that's the term we're used to hearing. Right? That's fine, nothing wrong with that. Evangelism. And in the method that we studied last week in chapter 10, 8 through 11, Jesus gave us four parts. He said, first, use your spiritual gift, remember? He said, that's what you've been given by God, equipped by God through the Spirit to minister to other people. And that supernatural gift you have is your superpower for one purpose, that is, to yield a supernatural result to the glory of God. In the body, first of all, yes, but Jesus has also told us it's a part of how we reach the world. Go out ministering in your gift, and as you do, God opens doors with that. God gives opportunity for conversations through your gifting, and that makes opportunity for gospel conversations. Secondly, Jesus commanded us to give our message freely, because we don't want to put any unnecessary barriers between the person we're talking to and the opportunity for eternal life. So what the Lord gave us freely, he asked us to share freely. That means you put no demands on anybody as a condition of this exchange that's taking place. Jesus, his word, and the kingdom are not ours to sell. They are not ours to put any conditions on. So any suggestion that people should owe us something in return for the gospel, such that we would inhibit their receiving of it, is to our shame. Just give what you've been given. Thirdly, he says, go about with a posture of dependence and vulnerability, which then leads to opportunities to engage with other people. We learned this last week. Remember that if you go out with needs, you're going to have opportunity to depend on others to meet those needs. There you go. Another kingdom moment, potentially. And whenever you receive a gift of kindness from someone because you have a need, reciprocation can kick in at that point. And that other person will begin to anticipate that maybe you'll do something in response for them because they did something for you first. And sure enough, you're going to give them the greatest gift you could possibly give them in response. You're going to offer them the kingdom. That's how you can use that moment. Finally, and step four is where we get back into the teaching tonight. Step four was, as you notice there at the end, verse 11, I summed it up as do your homework. And by that I mean Jesus says he wants us to go out. And in fact, let's just reread. I, I don't want to get out of the text for too long. Let's reread. I'm going to start with verse 11. That's where we're picking up tonight. And then let's read what I'm calling the result tonight, which is verses 12 through 15. So let's go there, and I'll pick up again with that idea. Verse 11, Jesus said, And whatever city or village you enter... 
Inquire who is worthy in it, and stay at his house until you leave that city. As you enter the house, give it your greeting. And if the house is worthy, give it your blessing of peace. But if it is not worthy, we'll take back your blessing of peace. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words, as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly, I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. All right, well, that's what we have to look at tonight. Verse 11, as I said again, this is where Jesus gives his apostles that fourth step in the method as I described it. And I call this doing your homework because he says, inquire who is worthy. And what we learned last week is what he's asking you to do is understand where's your opportunity going to be greatest under some set of circumstances, wherever you are, wherever you're looking. So he's asked us to combine this reliance on others for kindness and for our needs, combine that with careful forethought on how to make the most of every encounter. And that means things like ask the local experts, uh, connect with other ministries in that area, partner with, with mission organizations, do some, watch YouTube videos, Google it, do something to understand the community, the culture, the opportunities, what the laws say. Just be wise and uh, thoughtful about your approach in a given set of cir- circumstances. And here's the point. The point is, God has used those resources to help prepare you. He is at work in those things. I find it interesting how often Christians are always looking for a burning bush. And I mean literally. They think God only speaks through something that makes you know, a good movie scene. And they realize, they forget the fact that God works through ordinary circumstances far more often. There's a theological principle, actually, for this idea. It's called the conservation of miracles. It's something that people in seminaries talk about. It's a simple idea. It's that, yes, God can part red seas. He can burn bushes. He can bring hail. He can do all kinds of stuff. But does he normally do that? No. In fact, when he does it, it makes news. Right? But the rest of the time, what does he do? He lets you discover information through the internet. He, he, he does things on the TV that catch your attention. He sends a friend your way at coffee and shares some interesting news. You know, And we look back and we think those are coincidences. It's God at work. right? And the fact is that most of what God does in your life, directing you, apart from obviously the direction of Scripture itself, that's clearly a God thing, but in the more ordinary of everyday life, God is always at work. Now, let me say this, for example. No one's here by accident today. No one is in here by accident. I'm not saying what it's about. I don't know what it's about. I don't know if you'll ever come back. But you're not here tonight by accident. And you won't be tomorrow somewhere by accident or the next day. God is at work in your life every day. That's the sovereignty of God. And what we're hearing Jesus say here is, do your homework to understand who is worthy, but that homework is not about deciding where you think you should do your work or who you think should receive it. This is a research effort directed at learning where the Spirit is already at work in that area so that you can follow Him. This is an entirely different kind of homework. You're not trying to decide which door to knock down. You're trying to figure out which door has already been opened. That's a very different mindset. When you understand this concept, by the way, this concept that says God's already at work, I'm just trying to catch up to Him, and He's asking me to do my homework so that I'll notice Him, man, that will completely change your approach to evangelism. Completely change your idea of how you prepare. And as we're going to see, it also changes how you evaluate your results. It's the difference between searching for buried treasure using a shovel versus using a metal detector. I like that analogy because I think the human way, the normal, let's say unbiblical way of thinking of evangelism is, is sort of like searching for treasure with a shovel. You just depend on your strength and on your persistence, and you just think, if I dig long enough in enough places, sooner or later I'm going to hit gold. 
And that's our approach to how we go out into the world with the message of the gospel. But in reality, that method just wastes a lot of time, a lot of effort. It accomplishes very little except spreading a lot of dirt around. I've, I've, I've seen it. I've done it. I think we all start there. But eventually, if you keep doing it, you get tired and you get frustrated. Anybody feel that when they're in evangelism? The frustration. And then eventually you say, you know what? I, just, I, I guess I'm not good at this. Well, wait a minute. It wasn't up to you in the first place. That us statement, you know, I, I guess I'm not good at this. It's that I'm part in there that's the problem. Jesus gives us a method here that is so easy because the burden of working for Christ is light. That's the whole idea, right? He asks us to work, in effect, and I like this analogy because it's the way I like to think. He asks you to work with a metal detector before you pull out your shovel. So you don't waste effort just digging in fruitless places. You only invest time in places that you think have reasonable chance to be successful. So you do your homework, which is a way of saying you look for the Spirit at work, and in the research you undergo, the questions you ask, the places you visit, and so on, you expect the Spirit to show up somehow and show you. Because look, the Spirit knows where the sheep are. Remember we covered this? You're looking for lost sheep. You're not trying to turn goats into sheep. They're out there. God's working on hearts right now to make them who they will be in Christ. He's just going to connect you with them on some path. And that day is the day of of salvation for them, potentially. And so you're determined to figure out where that path is and where the Spirit's already working. So you inquire of Him, as Jesus said in His words, who is worthy? But it's not in, in the sense of inherent worth like they're deserving. It's in the sense of who's already ready, who has already been prepared, where is the Spirit already working? That's what worthy means in this context. Let Him lead you to the buried treasure so that when you dig, you will find it. That's the whole concept of evangelism. Now that you see that operating in, in the way we've studied it so far, I want you to consider that now in light of how you measure your results. Because this is where it really gets interesting to me. Results. He says in verse 12, the first step of assessing your results is to enter a house, as it comes out here in this context, entering a house, and give it your greeting. All right, now what's, just to be clear here, what's our greeting? Well, it's not just anything, because in the context of this passage, the greeting would have to be what Jesus has already told them to say. And what he told them to say in verse 7 is the kingdom program message. He sums it up as preach, the kingdom of God is at hand, right? Uh, that's the message of his day in that time. We'll come back to the message in a moment because ours will be a little different. But notice what he says. You begin your encounter with the kingdom program greeting right away, right up front. And as we learn back in part two, the words that he uses here are not necessarily the words we would use. To the Jew of the first century Palestinian territory, first century Palestine, the, the, the statement that the kingdom of God is at hand was inherently understandable. They understood what that meant. The Messiah had arrived, right? But we don't have that context or that culture, so our words are going to be different. But it doesn't matter what words you use, because as we said, the content doesn't change. The content is Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Put it in your own terms. It's Jesus Christ and Him crucified, the King who came to die so that you could enter the kingdom. It's not health, wealth, prosperity, or any other nonsense. It's the idea that if you don't believe in Jesus, you have no future. And if you want the kingdom, you put your faith in the King. That's the kingdom message. In so many words. Now, here's the result issue, though. Look at this. What is the first step of assessing results? Present the greeting. Now, does that statement sound odd to you? Does it sound like I've got my outline kind of screwed up now? I mean, doesn't it seem like that's way too soon to be evaluating results? It's still on the method, maybe? No, 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 no. Here we go. Here's another chance for you to rethink your approach, because you may have been doing it the wrong way. Jesus says, you begin assessing your results early in the process, not at the end. Early. 
And I think if you, I'm going to get some amens here, I know, because we've all done this. Have you ever delivered the gospel message this way? You just focus on getting to the end of your presentation. This is especially true if we're kind of new at it, right? And we've trained, and you launch in front of somebody, you launch out full speed ahead, right? You just, you just plow along, hoping you'll get to the end before they interrupt you or walk away. And they, they, they kind of, no, no, wait, I've got to get going, I've got to finish this. I mean, God bless you. That's great. You want to get the gospel out. That's what we want to do. If that's how you've worked, though, or if that's how you think it works, you're not following the kingdom program method. You're not following the method, and you're not looking at the results the right way. You have raced out ahead of the Spirit in that moment. What Jesus says is, don't get ahead of the Spirit. One step at a time. Don't outrun your headlights. The way I like to think of it is, you send a little trial balloon up. Let's see what happens. All right? That's my metal detector analogy again. Think about how you use a metal detector. You hover it over a spot of earth, and you just leave it there for a second, and uh, if the metal detector does anything at all, you might look at that spot another moment, right? You might stop and take another look. But here's the thing to remember. The metal detector does not produce gold. I mean, yes, you knew that, right? But think about that. It doesn't produce gold. That's not its job. It's just a way of testing. It's a way of testing whether that spot is likely to yield gold should you decide to dig at that point, right? So you have to dig to get to the gold, but you wave your little thing back and forth, momentarily hoping to get a reading. If you get a response, well, you, have, you hover a little more. You, you, you spend a little more time. You inspect the reading a little bit. Is it false? Is it true? And if it gets a positive reading over and over again, metal detector goes away, out comes a shovel. And you're after it now, right? So you have to pay special attention to the signals. You've got to be sensitive to whether it's making you know, good responses or not. So when you give someone your, your spiritual greeting, you're, you're using a spiritual metal detector. What you're doing is you're waiting to see, does this person have any interest at all in spiritual matters? Is there any life in there? Is there anything happening behind those eyes and that heart? Has God shown up here before me or not? Because you know what? If he ain't there right then, you aren't going to do anything. You won't convince them. This isn't a human process. People don't become Christians because of a mental agreement. God doesn't say, believe in your head. He doesn't say that, does he? Believe in your brain. You never hear that. Why not? Isn't this the thinking organ? Doesn't God know that? But why does he say, believe here? Because it's not a mental process. It is a spiritual process, which has as a consequence, mental change. But you don't believe Christ here. You believe him here. Who controls the heart? God alone. So dumping your entire presentation on someone before they, you even understand whether that heart is ready is like working with a shovel. It's like saying, I'm just going to blindly keep digging at this hole and hope I get to somewhere by the bottom. You know, Maybe there's a sheep down here somewhere. I'll just keep looking. That's not how it works, friends. When the Spirit points you in a certain direction. He leads you to a person. He, he creates a moment. And you go into that moment with eyes that understand, maybe this is something I have to look at. Maybe God's doing something here. And you go into it. You should not lose that perspective all the way in. You should continue to say, Jesus, what do I say now? What do I do now? What do I do now? You don't just say, oh, I got this from here, Jesus. I got it. No, We're good now. You go on to someone else. You have to have the spirits leading through the whole process. So practically speaking, what am I talking about? Well, these spiritual metal detector moments, they play out in a lot of different ways, probably endless ways. They're always fascinating to watch. Uh, you could ask simple questions like, and I've seen this, I actually have a good friend who's an evangelist, full-time missionary, and he does this work a lot, and I watch what he does when I'm with him. 
And he'll start a conversation with something like, um, has God been doing anything in your life lately? And you can ask anyone that question. Has God been doing anything? Or another one would be like, have you been reading the Bible lately? And you'd be shocked how many people would say, well, you know, it's interesting. I, I did read it recently. I didn't understand it, though. Where do you think you go with that? Well, tell me what you were reading. Just like Philip, right? He's asked questions like, do you have any questions about Jesus? He, one time he struck up a conversation with a taxi driver. He does this all the time. Taxi, Uber drivers. He always sits in the back. He always says the same thing as the start of the conversation. He says, do you like to talk about spiritual things? A lot of these guys are, are Eastern. You know, a lot of them are Pakistani, Indian, Filipino. I mean, there, a lot of these people come out of very spiritual cultures, if you want to use that terminology. And as a result, that kind of a question doesn't put them off. They kind of find it interesting. They open a door for you. All right? In other words, if somebody indicates they're going through difficult times in life, ask if they, you can pray for them. Ask if you can give them counsel out of the word. There was a guy I had lunch with one time. I love this example. We're getting ready to have lunch. The waitress comes. Can I get you anything else? And he says this. He says, no. And he says, by the way, we're Christian. We're going to get ready to pray here over our meal and thank God for our food. Is there anything we can pray for you about? And to see the expression on that woman's face was priceless. She sat there and she goes, and then she unloaded on us in some, you know, a divorce or something was going on. I don't even remember what it was. But it wasn't like she just said, oh, no, I'm fine. Thank you. We had a meaningful conversation for about a minute and a half. And we prayed for her. And, you know, those are the kinds of things that are spiritual metal detectors that don't hit gold every time. We know that. But what they're trying to do with this is you're trying to listen for the Lord's voice in any moment of the day or, or, or any time in your day. And as you put out those feelers, you let God show you what's coming next. It's just that simple. It's just that easy. I've tried to use that example of the waitress one myself a few times, and I always forget. You know, after they've already dropped the food and they left, you're like, I should have told her I was going to pray for her again, you know? You have to train yourself to think like that. Now, having said all that, there are wrong ways to do this. And I don't want to, you know, we could do this all day. There's a million ways, I know. But I just want to give you some guidelines so that you understand what I think Jesus is asking of us here. There are ways that you can go about this that will give you misleading results or what you might call false positives. And it's because you ask the wrong kind of question. For example, if you ask someone if they're interested in Christianity... Or if you ask them if they want to be a Christian, you're likely to get a false positive. Because those terms come with a lot of baggage. A lot of baggage in our culture. A lot of people think they are Christian, or think they know what it means to be Christian, because they grew up in a Christian home. Or because they grew up in the southern United States. Or because they watch TBN. Or, and I mean, you know, these are the kind of things that pass for what it means to be Christian. All right? Um, or because they were dragged to church most of their life. Who knows what kind of church, right? You might meet a Mormon who says they're Christian. You might meet a Jehovah's Witness who claims to be Christian. You meet a Christian scientist who claims to be Christian. I mean, there's people out there who appropriate the name of Jesus and have no understanding of the gospel whatsoever. Right? So the kingdom program, let me be clear, because I'm being clear on based on what we've seen already in the text. The kingdom program message and the kingdom program itself is not about leading people to church. It is not about leading people to a book that you want them to read or a podcast that you want them to listen to or even a great website with lots of great Bible teaching that I happen to know about. <laughs> Look, I'm happy if people want to listen to good Bible teaching, but that is not the kingdom program. All right? Because even if they say yes to those offers, friends, you still do not know if they are willing to respond to Jesus. There's no indication at that point where their heart is. You haven't thrown up a trial balloon that you can act on in the moment. In a sense, you've passed the buck to somebody else to do that. 
The kingdom program is about leading people, not to those things, but to a person, to Jesus Christ. And of course, it is okay to invite someone to church. Of course, it is all right to give them a book or whatever else. Those aren't a problem. It's just that they're not a substitute for the gospel, right? That's not the first thing you care about. Remember Paul's example in Athens from Acts, Acts chapter 17? You probably know the story. I'm not going to give you the whole of it, but just a quick reminder of this. I'll read you from Acts 17, 16, where Paul goes to Athens in Greece on one of his missionary journeys, and it says, Now while Paul was waiting for them, waiting for his companions, waiting for them at Athens, it says, His spirit was being provoked within him. Notice that? Spiritual metal detector. His spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And so he was reasoning in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present. Sound like our method? Then he goes on. And also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. And some were saying, what would this idle babbler wish to say? And others He seems to be proclaiming of strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. Kingdom message. And they took him and they brought him to the Areopagus and said, May we know more what this new teaching is which you are proclaiming? For you are bringing some strange things to our ears, so we want to know more about these things. That's our method right there. You see that at work? Verse 16 of that chapter, Paul was doing his homework in Athens. He was trying to figure out who was worthy. He was looking around, noticing idols, talking to people in the market, and sure enough, God intersects him with some men who happen to be there on that day, and in their conversations, he preaches the kingdom message, and now notice, they didn't say, oh, Jesus is Lord. What did they say? You're talking some strange stuff, dude. But we're interested. That's it. That's your metal detector. Paul was out there sweeping the crowd, and he got one guy. And Paul then follows up on that. He goes to the Areopagus, which is a a hill in in the city of Athens where men used to gather and just debate philosophy all day. And he gets an invitation. He goes, he makes a presentation there. And you see that later in the text of Acts. He gives the presentation. Now, if you know how the story ends, those guys don't believe, not the ones who saw him. But you know what? Others at the Areopagus do believe. I mean, that's how God works. All the time, that's how God works. Paul's message didn't appeal to everybody. Paul wasn't trying to reach everyone literally in that sense. He was realistic. But he knew that he had to get out there and, and, and you know, test the crowd to figure out who the people were that God was working with. When he found them, he followed. When he spoke, when he had the chance to speak, he did. All right? That's what, Paul, that's what Jesus is saying here. When he says, give a house your greeting... Now, in that day and age, what he was speaking about was men who would travel by foot, go into villages, have to stay somewhere. There wasn't necessarily a hotel. They would look for accommodation in someone's house. That was the culture. So he's speaking in terms of go to a home because of their culture. And you could do the same. But clearly, our culture is different, so we would see it happening perhaps in other ways. The point, though, is generalize it for a minute, and you get the point. The point is you meet someone, you encounter someone, you have an exchange. The exchange takes the form of the kingdom message, not, hey, do you like my book? Hey, come to my church. No, get to the point. I know about a way to get into the kingdom. I know about heaven. Would you be interested in that conversation? Can I tell you about Jesus? Somehow you move to that point relatively quickly. Why? Because if they're not interested at that point, you don't have to keep digging. But if they're interested, you have reason now to dig. And he says in verse 13, if there's a positive response to your message... He then says, give that house, or let's say in our context, that individual, a blessing of peace. Now, in the original Greek, the text that's translated there, give your blessing, is the word ekomai in Greek. And that's just the verb in Greek for to come or to go. So perhaps a better translation of that phrase would be, if the house is worthy, peace comes. 
That would be a, a little more literal way of translating it from Greek. So in other words, if I want to paraphrase it, if a person gives you a positive response to your spiritual greeting, peace has come to that person. In Hebrew, the word for peace, shalom, we know it as peace, but in Hebrew it has a lot of meanings. It actually has a lot of shades of meaning that are important to understanding what he's saying here. Shalom can mean completeness. It can mean perfection in welfare and in health. It means wholeness and safety. These are all aspects of the, of the concept of shalom. And so Jesus uses the word peace here to say spiritual wholeness, spiritual health has come to this person. A broken heart has been bound. New spiritual birth has taken place. A child of God has been birthed in your presence at the concept of the, of the kingdom being received. Okay, That is such a beautiful and succinct way of understanding the moment of salvation in someone else's life. When you come into someone's experience and you bring the message and it works as God appoints, It is peace. They are born again through an encounter with the power of God and the message of salvation, and they receive shalom. Paul says it this way in Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, when Paul talked about Jesus' own preaching, he describes it this way in Ephesians 2.17. He says, talking of Jesus, Paul says, And he came and preached peace... To you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. Speaking of the Jews versus the Gentiles. Peace. Now this is when the results really start to seem, I think, different than our experience. Because we might start to think, this is way too easy. And if it is, it's because you've been doing it the wrong way. When a person accepts your kingdom message, your search is over. At least in their case. Your search is over. It's just that simple. The process now moves to discipleship. Have you ever had that? I, I have I had this. I've had this where I preach the gospel in some form, and the person just says, yes. And I have to stop and say, no, well, let, me, let me back up. I don't think you understood what I just said. Because it doesn't work that easily. No one just says, yes. Yes, they do sometimes. If God's preparing that heart, you didn't need to make a clever argument. You just needed to show up and collect them. Remember, you're like a spiritual midwife. God does the birth. You just take it on. That's how he works. So the process of discipleship actually begins at this point. Jesus says, if you give your message and they receive it, peace has come. And now what would come from that is discipleship. Now, you don't see that in Matthew's gospel, but Luke, in the same passage, says this. Whatever house, this is in Luke 9, 4. He says, whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. Now, that's kind of a subtle way of saying it. Stay there. What he's saying is, stay with that house, or as I said for us, we could say it this way. Stay with that person. Stay with them until such time as you know the Spirit has told you, you move on. But in the in-between time, your focus is that person. You have just seen new sheep be born. They need care. And your primary concern is that until such time as the Spirit tells you otherwise, you need to start caring for that person in some spiritual context. And that, that's a little different, isn't it? We don't think like that. We think of like, I'm the one who catches them, someone else cleans them. I just walk around preaching the gospel, I'll wait for someone else to come. No, 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 no. That's not a biblical mindset. The biblical mindset is if God in his sovereign omniscience and omnipotence decided to work through you in that moment to make someone a believer, he also, by implication, expected you to do something with them. I mean, otherwise, why would he have had you be the person there in the moment? You have to think like that. What is he asking of me right now? So as somebody comes to faith, I want you to imagine you're out on the street corner. You know, we've seen this at times. People do street corner evangelism. Or you're going door to door in your neighborhood. Or you just have a coffee conversation with a coworker. And next thing you know, they're telling you they believe in Jesus Christ. 
Your metal detector is not just going off. It's like solid red. Blink, blink, blink. This person's here. We're done. You dig deeper. You realize, yes, they believed in the gospel. Now what? Now what? Well, Jesus says they are now your focus, at least for a time. You've been given the privilege to be the first person to disciple that new believer. How many of you would have loved to have had, if you came to faith, especially if you did it like I did as an adult, how much would you have loved to have somebody who was there at the very beginning say, all right, Steve, we got some work to do. Let me show you how this goes. And they were competent, and they cared, and they had the right focus. I mean, you think about that. It would just jumpstart your walk with Christ, wouldn't it? Compare that to someone who's just sort of saved and dunked and left, which happens a lot. That's not what we want to do here. That's not what Jesus said. In effect, the Lord has given you the privilege to disciple this person, so you now begin a process of equipping them. Now, there are realistic limits here. Some of you might say, well, I'm not capable of doing this. I don't even know how to start. Well, that doesn't mean you have to do it alone, but you ought to see see them to that point where they're getting care somehow. Another example is you save someone on an airplane. People talk on an airplane. They have a long time sitting next to somebody. By the end of the flight, they know Jesus. Let's say you got 30 minutes before landing. What are you going to do with them? You're off to Baltimore. They're going to Hawaii. What are you going to do? What are you going to do about that? Well, the very least you could do at that point is give them a direction on where to go to the Bible. You can direct them to resources online. You can say, look, when you get there, call me. Here's my number. I'll look for churches in your area. I mean, it's just a matter of saying I'm going to help. With an attitude that says there's something going on here. We didn't get to this point on our own. God's not going to drop the ball now. We can just keep moving together. Something good's going to happen. In the best case, you would take them under your wing. You'd help them begin an obedient walk. If you could do that. Whatever you do, don't say goodbye and move on. Because the kingdom program is not about putting notches in your belt. Right? It's not about somehow collecting these people in some kind of diary. You have to have a long-term perspective on this. That's what Christ sent his disciples out to do. Prepare for the church to receive them. All right? For the same reason, though, the results can go the other way. And it has another consequential effect. Jesus says in verse 13, If they say no to you, which is a way of saying they're not worthy. Remember, worthiness here in context describes their preparation, their heart's preparation by the Spirit. If in that moment it's obvious that despite your early indications, nothing's happening, nobody's home, right? There's nothing behind the lights. It's just dead. That happens, right? Once you get that understanding, that's what he means by not worthy. It says in verse 13, take your blessing of peace back. Now, here again, the translation is not real helpful. A more literal way to translate verse 13 would be, let your peace return to you. It's written in a, in a passive tense, not an active tense. In Luke 9, it's actually written this way. When Luke quotes Jesus, he quotes him this way. Luke 10:6. if a man of peace is there, your peace will rest on him. But if not, it will return to you. The idea here is pretty simple. In the face of rejection... Your offer of peace continues on elsewhere. That's the idea. He's preparing us. Jesus is preparing us for the reality here. And the reality is that at times, in fact, many times, your message of peace is going to be rejected. Let's just kind of get ready for that now. Let's just get that understanding in our head. We don't like it. We don't want it. But let's not be surprised by it. It's going to be rejected. It's going to be rejected a lot at times. The idea that someone would refuse an offer of peace with the Creator God doesn't make a lot of sense to us, I know. But the human heart is hard. And it will happen. Now, here's the issue. If you worry too much about that, that is, if you are tempted to come up with an alternative method or an alternative message 
in the hope that you can overcome those objections, you can get more results, you can increase your take, you can hit your sales goals. If you do that, you've walked away from the kingdom program. Instead, it's become Steve's program. Steve is making disciples of Steve. Steve is collecting people to his own glory. Steve is building his own program. If you try to make improvements in what Christ told us to do, that is, if you innovate, you will get some more yeses, probably, than you get noes, but they're not agreeing to what you think they're agreeing to. And I know that thinking may seem sensible to some of us, and I'm sure it's well-intentioned, but it's wrong and it's dangerous. To be honest, friends, Jesus did not ask us to innovate. You cannot find that in the Scriptures. There is no point in which Jesus said, here's a starting point, I'm sure you can do better. Come up with your own ideas. He gave us a very specific plan. Don't improve on the method. Don't improve on the message. Don't try to make the gospel more palatable. As I've mentioned here in past weeks, you have to remain absolutely, fundamentally clear that your objective is finding lost sheep, not turning goats into sheep. Your message will always be the gospel. It is not going to be something more palatable, not some easier to accept worldly version of that. Your method is preaching. That's what he asked us to do. Not some soft sell on religion. You're not trying to sneak them up to the gospel and sort of pounce it on them when they're not ready for it. You put it out there, plain, simple, in front of them. And let the metal detector go off when you find a sheep. And if it doesn't go off, you weren't going to get them to Jesus. I don't care what you did. You see, you're not losing anything. You're only gaining. Because you're moving more efficiently to where Christ is working rather than wasting time where he's not. And I'm not saying because you don't get a yes that that individual will never go to heaven. We don't know what the future holds for them. That's not the point. All we know is what that moment held. It wasn't then and it wasn't you. Fine. Maybe it'll be the next person tomorrow. That's in God's hands. Notice in verses 14 through 15. Jesus makes clear... We aren't to dwell on the rejections. And the reason is not because we don't have a caring heart for people. It's because when you dwell on the rejections, you become motivated to do wrong things about them. You get too worried about the wrong thing. And so while you're not looking for where the sheep are, you're too busy trying to turn a goat into a sheep, which is not going to work. A lot of what you see in the church today, in my opinion, things of of false gospels or soft-sell gospels are a direct result of people thinking that they have to change and innovate and improve on what Jesus gave us because they want to grow faster than they're growing or because they want to reach people they haven't been able to reach. The heart might be in the right place, but that doesn't mean the methods are valid. And it certainly doesn't mean that the people they're collecting are the people that they think they have. Jesus said, regardless of whether they reject us or the gospel itself, our response is the same. You notice he says that in the text, in the verses I already read, he refers to those who don't heed our words. He says, uh, those who don't heed your words, or those, he says, who they don't receive your greeting, or they don't heed your words. Do you see that? That refers to whether they don't accept you, or whether they don't accept the message. You'll get both. You'll get people who just, you know, you try to start, they don't have anything to do with you. You're that Christian fundamentalist, Bible-thumping, you know what? I don't want anything to do with you. That's someone who's not accepting your greeting. Then there's the people who give you a hearing because they try to be polite. And as you get into the depths of it, they say, that's good for you. That's not what I believe. Now they're not heeding your words. Either way, Jesus says, shake the dust off your feet and move on. He says, do it no matter why they reject you. Now, in that day, travel was mostly by foot. 
And you you walk generally in sandals, maybe a leather shoe. The roads were hard-packed soil, or maybe they were brick or or stone-lined roads. But in any case, it was always dusty. And if you walk long enough, a traveler's feet would get caked in dirt. And as you came into a home seeking shelter, it would be customary for the host to offer to wash the person's feet as a form of hospitality. If you've ever had your feet just really caked with mud or dirt, it's not comfortable, right? It's a nice feeling to clean your feet after you've been dirty all day. And that kind of hospitality was very important in the Eastern culture. It still is today. I mean, it's considered the height of incivility to not show hospitality to a guest in these ways. So look at what Jesus just said. He says, you're on the edge of town, you're leaving, and you're having to shake the dust off your feet. What he's saying is, if a traveler has to shake dust off his feet after being in a town, it means that town did not give that traveler a good reception. They did not receive the hospitality there that they should have. It's a severe indictment against that town, and it's to their shame. So, Jesus said those in his day who had heard and received the kingdom message through these emissaries that he sent out and rejected it will face a harsher judgment than Sodom and Gomorrah. And what he's speaking about here is something very unique. He's speaking about the circumstances of that generation of Israel as a result of rejecting Messiah in their day. And we'll take a closer look at this at chapter 12 when he actually is rejected. I don't want to do it here tonight. The point for us here is more simple than this. It's not cultural. It's very simple. That when your message is not received, friends, you still get a testimony in that moment. The testimony of the man in his example was he testified against them by shaking off dust. And in a sense, you do the same thing. You come to the moment bringing someone a message of grace and mercy, and what you hope for is a testimony of faith, of salvation through repentance and faith, right? You hope for that testimony every time. But instead, in many cases, what you will find is the Lord has chosen to use you and that moment to produce a testimony of judgment. And there's two kinds of testimonies in the Bible. There's the testimony that you can do that is unto salvation, unto God's glory and to the individual's benefit. But there's also a testimony against people. You know, the Bible talks about two or more witnesses who would testify against someone. It's up to God to decide how he will use our work, not us. If you are faithful and you obey, you will get both kinds of testimonies over time. And you do not control which one you get when. But you have to be content with whichever one God gives you in that moment. That is part of the kingdom program. God may use you as a witness so that someone comes to know the truth, or he may use you as a witness against someone. Either way, it's in God's hands. You're just called to be obedient. And so it may be obvious to say this, but the kingdom program will not result in salvation for everyone who hears. The truth that you have, you share because God has asked you to share. You don't dig deeper than the Spirit asks you to dig. You move on. So when Jesus says, someone who rejects the message sees the peace return to you, here's the concept. And it's a very visual one. I want you to think of it this way. He's simply saying, look, you've detected that the Spirit's not working. You've realized that God's not with this individual. And you therefore understand that there's no opportunity in that moment to bring faith to that heart. And if the Spirit's not working, what that means is your message went in, hit that hard heart, bounced back, and you've got it back. Your peace has come back to you. All right, what does that mean now? I still have it to give. I still got someone else there that needs it then. Bing, bonk, okay, well, let's go to the next person. That's the concept. Do you remember in Luke 14? There's a parable in Luke 14 where Jesus talks about a, a, a king, a ruler, who, who sets a banquet table, and he invites those he wants to see at the table, and, the, and those who are invited to this banquet refuse to come to the banquet. 
So then he says to his servants, well, you know what we're going to do? We're going to go out and we're going to look for more guests. Now, why doesn't he say this? Why doesn't he say, well, gee, they refused my invitation. I guess my invitation might have been wrong. Let's reword that invitation. You know what? Maybe it's the menu. Maybe they didn't like the menu. You see, that's the world's way of thinking about the problem. And unfortunately, that's sometimes the way the church thinks about the problem. We sent our team out. We brought the gospel. We had no converts. What are we doing wrong? Maybe nothing. Except learning. Except experiencing something God wants you to experience. I'm not saying you can't do better. I'm not saying there isn't some opportunity to think about your process. What I am saying is, don't change your method if it's biblical. Don't change your message if it's the gospel. That's not changing. In the parable, the king tells his servants, just look for more people. Go further. Go farther. Choose new ones. And they end up filling that table with people. Same message. Same invitation. Same banquet. Different people. Now, you know in that parable, the king is Jesus. The table is the kingdom. That is, it's the supper that inaugurates the kingdom. The first group of guests were the Jewish generation that rejected him. Who are the ones that eventually accepted that invitation? The Gentiles, which include us. And we then also become the servants that find the person who's going to sit next to us at that same table. So, friends, I've ended every one of these weeks that we've taught in this chapter with a challenge, right? Tried to take what we've learned and ask you to do something with it, right? In past weeks, I've asked you to go out from this building with a willingness that says you didn't just learn this so that you could have something interesting to talk about at dinner. You learned this because God brought you here because he's going to do something with it. That's someone who knows the sovereignty of God. Week one, we learned about the fact that we're seeking lost sheep. We're not making goats into sheep. And so I asked you to go out of here with spiritual eyes that said, people you meet might be a lost sheep. Be sensitive to that. And then when we looked at the message, I said, I want you to have a message in your heart that understood what the gospel meant. And then as you go out, you're willing to share it in a forthright way. And then in weeks after that, I shared some testimonies with you from those people who had applied what they've been hearing. Uh, we had a group of ladies from this church who went downtown on Super Bowl Sunday in the morning, uh, first part of the day before the game. They knew better than to go during the game. There'd been no one down there. But they went down before the game and they had their own flyers with the gospel message. They had a plan. They had some idea on how to do it. They went out and they, I think it was men and women, they went out for a, f- a few hours on the river walk and they just met people whenever they could and talked about Jesus. Good for them. Last week I read you that letter from the lady who listens to the teaching online and she heard my challenge not a part of our congregation, but she's part of the church. And she prayed, remember she prayed for an opportunity for God to give her someone she could help. She finishes the prayer, she walks outside and the guy asks if he could help get a hotel. And then she drove him to the hotel and she gave him the gospel, remember? And she said, I did it because I remember you saying, this is what God does, I need to be ready. And she did it. All right, this week I got another letter from a guy in Indiana. And he had read, he had heard online and he said, I want to be more receptive to the Spirit's leading. I want to do this too. And he tells, it's a long story, I can't share the whole of it, it'd be too long. But the sum of it is, you remember all the bad weather that came just recently, right? He sees a woman walking at night on the side of the road in the, in the snowstorm, without proper clothing. And normally he says he's a guy who doesn't normally pick up women and, you know, all that. But it was clearly a dangerous situation. And so he pulled over and said, well, it looks like you need a ride. And she apparently felt desperate enough to get in the car with a strange man, but sat in the back seat, etc. You know, they, it was fine, but, you know, it's kind of a tricky situation but he he took her took her to her destination but in the way as they go he starts talking to her and he's thinking about this he says in his letter that this is something god put in his path he needs to do something with this he starts talking about jesus starts talking about uh, kind of a spiritual greeting if you will 
And then that led to more conversation. Then he prayed with her. Then he said he told her about verse by verse and so she could go study online. That's the idea of making sure she's ready to move on. He wasn't sure if she became a Christian or if she was already a Christian, but he just kept moving her down that path. Turns out she was the former student of his wife when she taught junior high years earlier. So they had this little connection which kind of helped the conversation go further, right? I also heard from a man who took the initiative to talk to an Amish man. Now, Amish are not Christian, if you didn't know. Amish are not Christian. And he, he talked to this Amish man about Jesus and also mentioned verse by verse because that's what he listens to. And then he did write me this. He said after a few months, he ran into the Amish guy. He says, the Amish man came up to me and could not stop talking about what he was learning in Genesis. And he talked about what he liked about the way we teach, etc. But he was focused on the Bible. And then he told me, the Amish man said, I'm texting all my friends and my uh, neighbors in the Amish community about this website. <laughs> I'm predicting he will not be part of the Amish community much longer. <laughs> and then this guy who wrote to me about this said, well, then I told, and this sounds self-serving. I don't mean it that way. I just want to hear the heart of this guy. He says, I told him, if you like Pastor Armstrong, then his Sovereignty of God series message six will change your life. And that was this guy's opinion. And uh, it is true. But... Um, <laughs> And then he said the guy found him the next day after this. He says the guy came back saying he could not stop talking about how much he had never seen God working like that before. And and this guy said, yep, I told him the last 10 minutes will change your life. But the point is this. He says, so it seems God's word, through verse by verse, are going into the Amish community. God is sovereign. Well, I take no credit for this, obviously. How could we, right? We have nothing to do with this. This is all God. But all I could say to reading that was, yes, indeed, God is sovereign. Right? All these people, the one I just mentioned, the ones we talked about in past weeks, the friends here in our own church who have gone out doing what God has called them to do, all of those people, all they had to do to experience a little bit of how God works, to say nothing of miracles in people's lives, is just set their mind on following the Spirit. He was always there. He was always working around them. The only thing that changed was we said, why don't you listen? Why don't you see what God's doing? Understand the pattern. Get ready to work within it. That's all that stands between you and a miracle this week. I'm not promising you anything. I'm not going to tell you that. I don't know what God's going to do. But the only thing that stands between you and these kinds of experiences, however they turn out, is your willingness to give a greeting, to hear what the Spirit is doing, follow up on what you see Him doing. I can't wait to hear your story next week. Right? That's why we come here. That's what this is about. Father, we're going to finish up with this prayer tonight, Father, because I look at all that you've done here tonight, and I know that we want to stay focused on what your word has said, and we thank you, Father, for that. We thank you for the word and the way it's taught us and led us to understand deep things. Father, thank you for the excitement it builds in our heart. Each of us in our own day and week ahead is thinking about where we're going to be right now, I pray. And that there are people in our path we're going to run into, people we may have seen for years, people that are just part of our everyday life, or maybe it'll be a stranger, Father. You'll send somebody our way. And... It'll look like everything, it'll look like a day, any day we've ever had, Father. You're just going to let the day roll out, but something in our heart will, will light up. We'll know that that's the moment, that you're doing something, because you can talk to us. We know that, Father. And as you talk to us and as we hear that, Father, and now that we've been prepared through your word, I pray, Father, you would give us courage and confidence and excitement and anticipation, the kinds of things, Father, that will propel us into a conversation. And even though we don't know all that we would say, and even though we can't be sure we have all the, the details right, Father, we don't, we don't need those things. We know you have it all prepared. We just ask you, Father, that you wouldn't let us sit on the sidelines any longer. Thank you, Father, for helping us move in this direction so that we can enjoy the blessing of walking with you now and building your kingdom. We pray this in Jesus' name.
Amen.